Okay, um, welcome everybody. There'll be people joining us along the way. Um, we have about an hour and a half now, and this is our third CoThink event. Um, I was just saying a minute ago, but I'll repeat here for now just for the recording. The first one we did was about a year ago, and we did it on global migration. Um, and the last one we did was on the emergence of Africa. And what we're trying to do in these kind of events is start as a community thinking about future issues so that as believers we're not behind the curve but we're ahead of the curve and start to have a collection of thinking and understanding that is moving forward with being ready and being prepared and being like being being a community that's actually on the edge as opposed to being behind that process and so things like you know global migration what does it mean when you know, environmental changes mean that 100 million people move to this location. How are we going to be actually relevant and have applicable kingdom answers to that type of dynamic? When there's another billion people in Africa in the next 20, 30 years, what are we going to do about the economic opportunities that that creates? Um, and when we're discussing for this call, um, one of the one of the things that was really clear, we've, we've got to talk about next generation technologies that are subversive and going to change everything. And so I was with um, Ben, who's going to be sharing first, about a year and a half ago in San Francisco. And he just basically spent 20 minutes talking about a technology that I was like, oh my goodness, that changes everything. And then later we're going to be hearing from a, a, another um, resource person called Rick Austin. And he works in, in the Valley. He's going to be sharing about next generation technologies as well. And so... Um, Ben is my friend. I've known Ben for several years, probably, well, probably getting on for almost a decade um, informally and more um, recently. In the last five years, we've been quite close. And he works, um, he's the CTO for a company called Bano, um, and he works in the financial industry. And that company, I believe, was bought by a rather large, a larger group called Jack Henry. And he works with them, and he basically does their business development and, and is in charge of a whole bunch of coders. Um, and, and so Ben's going to kick off and he's going to be talking about um, blockchain, which is the technology that we're probably more familiar knowing about through, the, through Bitcoin, um, which uses the blockchain technology. But he's not going to be talking about Bitcoin, he's going to be talking about blockchain um, and showing about that. And then also then from there, they're on talking about like, the dynamics and the changes that's going to mean for us in lots of different areas. So Ben, welcome. It's been great to have you. Thank you for taking the time. I know that you're a very yeah. good man. Um, but we're very happy to have you, and if you'd like to jump in, go for it. All right. Well, Do you want questions? Okay. Do you want questions, or you just want to jump in? Have you got something prepared? Something prepared there? Yeah. Well, a couple, just a couple things. Um, I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm glad to take questions, and you guys are happy to. I'm happy to uh, uh, take interruptions at any time. I'm, I um, the bit the number one challenge you have when trying to talk about these things is that um, it's kind of like trying to talk about physics if you don't know math. Um, the only possible way to talk about physics if you don't know math is uh, to use metaphor. Okay, so essentially using some kind of uh, abstraction or metaphor to help build up an understanding, so it gives you a rough idea of what is going on. So. My goal today is actually not to talk that much about blockchain, but to talk about the way things work today that blockchain sort of disrupts. Maybe, does that make sense? Um, and and um, I live in the world of banking in, in the West, 
And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that to try to build up uh, an, a, an understanding of the world we live in, because the thing that blockchain disrupts, it disrupts something that, um, that we all sort of just implicitly trust. Um, so uh, that's what we'll talk about. But if you want to ask any questions up front that you want to make sure I cover, Chris, I'd be happy to. No, that's good. And then for any of us that want to ask questions, if you can chat the question on the right-hand side, and then when we've got through what Ben's sharing, we'll go through those questions and then feed them into the, into the group that way. So if you've got questions, write them in the chat on the right-hand side, and then we'll get to those when Ben's gone through what he's got to share. Go for it, Ben. That'd be, that'd be great if you jump in. Okay. So um, I'm going to start with just a quick story uh, to try to illustrate um, the, the, what, what blockchain does. Um, um, so I was in Cambodia two years ago with, um, with Anne and, um, I, I had, all I had on me was bot. So the Thai bot currency. Okay. Um, that's all I had on me. And there was a gentleman on the street, uh, begging for money and, 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 um, and uh, all I had was bot. So I gave him some of my bot. And he uh, just literally got really upset. And he's like, bot, bot, ah. he didn't want Thai bot. So the question you, you might ask yourself is why, and you guys would likely know, why didn't he want Thai bot? Why didn't he want it? That's a really sort of fundamental question. He knew I was an American. Uh, he was hoping to get this, right? This is the US dollar, this is US currency. So this is, um, uh, so this is a $5 bill, as you know. I'm gonna start talking about things that are obvious to us, but they're meant to try to inform um, what, what's going to happen uh, uh, in the very near future. So now this, if I'm standing here, if I'm on the street and this is all I have, I have $5 and now I have 10, okay? And now I have 30, okay? And now I have $50. Okay. Now, in a cash society, which in, in Asia, very still much a, a cash society, um, if I gave this to that gentleman, this $20 bill to that gentleman on the street, how does he know he has $20? How does he know that? Um, there is a bunch of implicit ephemeral trust that happens around this. This is fundamentally built on trusting a lot of things that we just don't normally think about. So uh, first of all, um, why does this hold its value? If you ask that question, it leads to a lot of very difficult answers. I'm going to try to trudge through some of those, okay? Um, but fundamentally, every, when you talk about blockchain, you have to talk about the word trust. Um, because uh, as this piece of paper has moved into the digital arena, because now I don't carry that, I generally carry this. Okay, so now we still have this, this thing. And now in Asia, they don't carry that, they carry this, right? So if you live in China, uh, your ability to do to transact um, or do commerce uh, is really sort of rooted in your battery life, right? Okay. Now, uh, the reason I, 
I spent a lot of time thinking about this is that we build software for banks. Um, we actually build a general ledger for banks to use. That is what Jack Henry's business is. So Jack Henry's publicly traded on the NASDAQ, JKHY, if you wanna go look at the stock price, uh, that's where I work. I'm the managing director, I lead all of internet mobile for them. But the, uh, the, the place that Jack Henry makes most of their money is a ledger that they sell, it's ledger software that they sell to banks. Now, Jack Henry became a large company because they essentially allowed uh, the transition of banks to stop using paper to begin using computers, okay? So back before computers at a bank, you had a what? A ledger. It was a paper ledger. It was a piece of paper that said Ben had $100 in his account. And uh, if Ben wanted to spend $10, um, that then $10 would be deducted from my account. And if I wanted to uh, give $10 to Chris, uh, uh, $10 would be added to Chris's ledger. Does that make sense? I'm, very, I'm being extremely simplistic as I can. As things progressed, we, we um, um, uh, I'm gonna kind of hit stop there. I wanna, I wanna illustrate one point. This is a contract. And that's the hard thing to understand metaphorically because this is a contract. If I give this to Chris, there's some guarantee that this is worth something. That guarantee is sort of backed by the US government, by the US economy. If, if the US economy crashes, if our stock market crashes today, this is worth less. But the, the things that go into uh, making this worth something, um, the, one of the big things is the United States legal system, okay? So um, the, the big reason um, that, that that gentleman would have preferred to have had this currency is because of the United States military and its judicial system. It's sort of, it's literally, this, this is really, the trust in this is backed by our ability to control the ocean and nuclear weapons, really. Um, so, um, I'm going to try to illustrate this conceptual thing further. There's lots of contracts in the world. Um, if I were to, for example, right now, send Chris $10 on Square, that's no real, that's not really any different. Um, everybody familiar with Square or PayPal, if I send $10 to one of you via this, okay, I want you to think about everybody you've got to trust in that transaction. So first of all, I have to trust that Square's gonna get $10 to Chris. I have to trust that. Underneath the hood, there's several rails on which Square will send that money to Chris. I have no idea what financial institution Chris uses on the other side. If he's got a financial institution in Thailand or China, I don't know whether he's got a UK financial institution. So now we're talking about countries and borders and other jurisdictions and other law, okay, other judicial systems. So when I send him $10, the amount of trust that's involved, first of all, I'm trusting the United States judicial system, the United States government, the central bank, I'm trusting 
our military might. I'm trusting that the stock market's not going to crash. There's all kinds of things that I'm trusting in. Uh, and then I'm also trusting that Chris is going to get that money and that he's going to get it in Thailand and his financial institution is going to honor that transaction, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a ton of these very centralized entities. So Visa MasterCard, which is the primary rails on which Square moves money, uh, also ACH. Um, uh, those are, uh, it's really uh, hard for me to not talk about rails because Bitcoin is really a new rail. But at any rate, so um, my point really is just that there's a bunch of trusted third parties that are involved in me sending Chris $10. Um, and what that is, is a, is a very simple contract. Um, now, if you pull that out and tie currency, now there's a currency exchange. The largest market, sort of quiet market in the world is the currency exchange markets, okay? So there's, there's just a lot of things that people don't normally think about, you know? Um, but if I was using a, a, an, insti a, an institution, if I was using an institution that was using Jack Henry software, we also have a whole other dependency chain, which is the ledger that we built at Jack Henry. Um, and all the integrations that we provide to even allow that transaction to even happen, the connectivity into the card networks and on and on and on it goes. Okay. So what I want to now talk about is that, that makes sense to everybody kind of like, I'm just trying to maybe broaden and deepen your understanding of all the entities. Go ahead. Like, uh, so just to really summarize, there's a lot of trust based on a lot of different players in any single transaction. That's right. That's right. So, uh, to, you know, um, and that trust can break down quickly, like in 2008. Okay. And, 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 and basically, uh, the reason uh, we had 2008 is, is there's lots of reasons, but uh, one of them is so much centralization in, in the financial system. So what the blockchain does is it decentralizes everything I just described completely. There is no trusted third party anymore. A trusted third party is gone. And now, not only do you have decentralization, you have distribution. And it's also a removal of the humans in the process. This is sort of a particular thing that most people don't talk about when you talk about blockchain and Bitcoin and these kinds of technologies, is that it's a removal of the human element uh, from those transactions. What I mean by that is, um, let me try to come up with a good way of illustrating this. Uh, at a bank today, a centralized institution, if you wanted to reverse a transaction, you could. You would do that by calling them, likely, or contacting them on the internet. You would work with some human that's working with some uh, uh, software, okay, to reverse that transaction. On the blockchain, things are not reversible, okay? They're not reversible. Um, and, um, and to kind of illustrate um, a few points about wh why that's, you know, why, so people will say, well, why, why Bitcoin? Uh, very important couple of things. I'm, I'm gonna switch gears now and we'll kind of piece some of these puzzle pieces back together in a bit. Um, couple of fundamental things to understand about the technology in 2008, when it came out, it was a, as an eight page paper, you can go read it. Um, um, it was anonymously posted on the internet. 
the thing to understand about that in the broad picture of things, if you go read it, if you're not a technical person, you'll have a difficult time. Um, but uh, you should be able to get a basic understanding of what they're trying to say. But um, likely it was a group of people, not just one. Um, but what was in that paper is the equivalent of the theories that Einstein published back in, the, er, uh, back in the early part of the previous century. It changes everything. If there is a Nobel Prize for computer science, which there's not, that, that person or persons who published that paper would have won it hands down. It changed the fabric of everything we understand about how to build systems. So as a computer scientist, which I am, um, there's so much innovation in that paper. And I mean innovation in thinking. So taking existing systems and innovating what's there already today to a point where uh, decentralized smart contract systems are now possible. Um, then uh, that paper was then posted to the internet along with um, some code uh, that was just open source and living on the internet. And it just, it has gone uh, really, uh, really sort of uh, 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 crazy, as, as you know. Um, but the underlying, the way to understand the blockchain, a way I try to, to, to help people understand it, it would be like if I was in, um, came to you in like the, the, the late 1980s, and um, I said, hey, there's this thing called TCP IP. And it's going to change the world. And there's this uh, protocol and there's these IP addresses, you know, and these computers, they can talk to each other and they can do this thing. And it's going to decentralize information and learning and knowledge. Um, and things like our sort of central encyclopedia systems are now going to become decentralized and now everyone's going to have this information. You're not going to have to pay for it. Um, the blockchain is the decentralization of anything that requires a contract. Okay, so um, this, like I said, this is a contract. So this is a, probably a very simplified form of, it's a simple, simple contract. So it, 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 the reason currencies were first built on Bitcoin is it's one of the basic, most simplest things to build. So when you say Bitcoin, you really have to separate that from, from blockchain technology. Uh, it was just currency that got built on it. And a lot of people think, well, Bitcoin is a currency. Yes. Um, and there's a lot to talk about there. And there's, there's, there's a, it's a really powerful thing. It's the, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin network is the most reliable, largest payments network in the world today. So that's a very important thing to understand. The problem with currencies, though, um, is that uh, human beings trade them. Okay. So um, a lot of people talk to me about, you know, would, 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 would Bitcoin be really valuable for, for developing countries and the poor? I want to go back to the reason I told that story about that gentleman with the Thai bot. That's really hard for that gentleman with the top, that's asking for, for money on the streets. Very hard for the poor because the prices fluctuate too much. Why did he want the U.S. dollar? It's backed by a pretty big military, right? And there is something about centralization that, that people like. So as humans, we gravitate towards centralization. Um, uh, uh, so so as, as, things, 
develop uh, uh, on uh, on the on the currency side, it's really important that you just separate those two because now there's tons of currencies, there's new blockchains and new currencies, uh, and there's tons of trading mechanisms. I'm going to state a few things that are generally true, um, but the Bitcoin network itself, that blockchain has really never been hacked. But if you go look, uh, if you look up on the internet like Bitcoin hacks, you'll just read tons of information. That's because it's possible um, to steal Bitcoin from someone who has it if you can get all the information required to steal it. Um, so it, you're, you essentially, in order to, uh, you know, have ownership on the blockchain, you're, you're given, um, um, well, I'm, you're given essentially a key. That key is a digital signature. That digital signature can live uh, on a disk, on a computer like this. Uh, it can live in your mind if you can memorize it. So one of the most interesting things about um, uh, cryptocurrency is that I could carry a billion dollars in my mind across a border anywhere in the country, in the, anywhere in the world. So I'm just trying to give you a few more metaphors to understand the power of this. I could, I could literally take a billion dollars in my mind, memorize the key to it, and I can cross a border and no one will ever know. Um, well, what if I forget that key? I'm screwed. That's why people now have chips in their hands. I have a gentleman in my office who has a chip, two chips in his hands that he's injected in his hands, and that's where he stores the backup of his Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. Um, it, it lives digitally, and it needs to live in a computer, or you can memorize the key. It can live in your brain. Um, all right, I'm going to hit pause. I know I've kind of just ripped through a bunch of things. Chris, maybe if you can guide me from here on what you want me to talk about. Yeah, I think I, think I, I, I would like to talk a little bit more about the decentralization of, of the blockchain and how that changes trust. And then I want, if it's possible, Ben, I'd like you to paint a picture. Okay, so what does blockchain mean for national identity? What does blockchain mean for real estate transactions? What does blockchain mean for the transfer of value in human interaction? And where do you, that's one side, and then where do you see that subverting countries, national identities, transcending those things like is it is it something that's going to change to the level of, of geopolitical and economic norms that we know today yeah everything changes um uh, I, these things get so hard to talk about without getting technical it's um, you probably hear me struggling um let's talk about this it, it and i don't know how it works in thailand or china but your identity who you are exists in a centralized list somewhere does not matter the country. So in the United States, this is part of my identity. My passport is part of my identity. This, this identity, right, this number exists in a list somewhere. Somebody owns a centralized list that has me in it. Does that make sense? Um, if things change with these pieces and forms of identification, what, what, what is that? That's like a ledger for my identity. Does that make sense? Right, so somebody has that ledger in the United States, right? We know where that, that is. I don't know where it is, but it's generally held by the government, okay? Um, uh, and and uh, so 
everything sort of lives in these kinds of ledgers. If I were to say buy a house in the United States, the history of that house is held somewhere, likely in the county in which it's, it is zoned, okay? Uh, and there's a history of, of, of who's bought it, the prices they bought it at. Okay, so that's a ledger, okay? Um, what if I want to buy a house in Thailand? Now we've got a really interesting problem, multiple ledgers, okay? And then also multiple jurisdictions of law applied, okay? Uh, and I really, if I'm going to buy a house in Thailand, I have to abide by whatever jurisdiction or law that's there, okay? Or if you come here to the United States, same thing. The blockchain is a decentralized ledger. So the best way I can do this, and I apologize uh, if anybody is on this call is technical, I'm going to really dodge a lot of the technical details and be try to try to be roughly correct about this instead of precisely wrong. So I'm going to share my screen. Um, everybody see this Coke machine? Okay. Um, this is one of my favorite uh, illustrations of this. Uh, this is a machine that can realize a, a contract. If you put a dollar in this machine, you get a Coke. That's a contract. Okay. Um, and uh, if you put a dollar in the machine, you didn't get a Coke, what, what happens? Uh, what if you put a dollar fifty in the machine? It'll give you fifty cents back, right? If you put two dollars, it'll give you a dollar back. Okay, so what's happened is this contract for a Coke has been encoded in this machine. Okay, so that's really all the ledger is. We're taking this this idea of paper. So here's a contract. I've got a contract right here for my new LLC. Okay, that I'm forming in Iowa. Where does this LLC live? It lives in a list. It lives in a ledger. Okay. So I'm going to kind of move over to my whiteboard. This is just my iPad. Um, and um, so in banking, there was a centralized uh, ledger that's existed. If we, just, if we just use a simple ledger of like, okay, so I've got $100 and I'm going to do minus 10 and I'm going to do plus 50. Okay, so this ledger sort of records that. This is very centralized. So in order for me to send money to some kind of third party or some person, um, I, they are going to have to interact with this centralized ledger. It's not really um, possible um, by means and uh, uh, by any other means. So, okay, um, what, what do you do? How do you decentralize that? Well, on a blockchain, The ledger lives everywhere. It's completely decentralized. So this, this guy right here now lives everywhere. There's a copy of it that's held by everyone. I'm drawing this this way to give you the idea, and it's held in thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of places. Everyone has a copy of it, and every transaction I've ever done on the network lives in that ledger. Now, if I go to send $10 to Chris, that transaction comes into this network, and these computers, I'm going to try to highlight the, these computers, start to compete for that transaction. 
this is where things get technical and difficult to describe. But in, in order, um, basically, they are trying to compete for the, to be the first one to reconcile this $10 on the ledger. And the computer that wins in the Bitcoin world, it's a little bit of Bitcoin because it won. But there's all these computers competing and they're all talking to each other. One of the big innovations in the, in, in the blockchain technology was just distributed protocols and the ability of these computers to essentially talk to each other and say, hey, there's $10. Hey, there's $10. Chris, Ben wants to pay Chris. Hey, Ben wants to pay Chris. Ben wants to pay Chris. Can Ben pay Chris? Does Ben have enough money to pay Chris? Can we reconcile this transaction? So it's literally running uh, on, on thousands of computers. Now, in order to, to this is where, uh, this is really where the innovation around trust comes in because there's no third party that's trusted to reconcile this $10, okay? Um, there's really sort of no, 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 there's nobody we're saying, you know, we've got to trust in order to do that. So um, th that's really out of the window. The trust is in the ability of these computers to reconcile the transaction, what's called proof of work. One of the interesting things about the blockchain is that, um, is the algorithm the work that it has to do to reconcile this $10 on the ledger is quite intense and quite heavy, actually abnormally so. It's very abnormally so. It takes, it's, uh, it's quite computationally intensive. Um, so um, because there has to be a cost of the proof of work um, to help build the trust that it happened on the network. So we're talking about $10, but you could also talk about property. So physical property. Physical property could re be represented in such a network. Any place where there is a centralized list or a ledger, which ledgers exist everywhere, they actually exist in that Coke machine. There's a ledger in that Coke machine that says how many people bought Cokes. If I own that Coke machine, there's a ledger for it. So um, that's really what, so essentially, eventually, uh, physical property will be resent, represented um, in, in a blockchain form. Our identities will be. There's already many, many startups um, being built around identity um, because, again, it lives in sort of a ledger format. Um, um, nearly, nearly everything uh, that you can that you can think of that has some kind of central trusted third party um, um, will be ultimately represented there. It's kind of like um, when that's what I was trying to explain. You know, like TCP/IP for the internet. What it represented was the decentralization of information. This represents the decentralization of any kind of contract, of any kind of ledger. Does that make sense? Gosh, I hope I'm communicating relatively understandably. But that's great, and I think, like, just from 
from from your perspective, like, can you just map out one or two concrete? So you look forward, say, we're fifty years down, fifty years in the future. What what's different? Just explain a couple of things that we can like, like, just get our heads around. Like, what would be different for you and you and or I? I don't know, in crossing a border or buying a house or trading intellectual property rights or doing a legal contract. Um, I, 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 I might, I might use a different, uh, this is, uh, this might be, this might be a bad path, but I'm going to try it. Um, uh, let, let's just take uh, google.com. Uh, I, or twitter.com. Um, does anybody know why that can be blocked in China? Um, that can be blocked in China because it's a, it's a centralized list. Because of this thing called DNS, this is a central list of essentially um, mapping a domain name to an IP address. I don't know what the IP address is for www.google.com, that these kinds of things can be, can be blocked and managed and handled because there's still some centralization on the internet. Um, if you take this over to the blockchain, which is already being done, um, you can get a, like a .bit URL, and now it's completely decentralized there's no place to go to block it. Because over here in DNS land, there's a very centralized place where you can go and deal with that list. So what happens to property? Chris, to answer your question. By the way, this is property, right? See, somebody owns that domain name. I, I own a list of about, about 12 domain names. So I own, I own those things. Ownership becomes very broad and, and sort of ubiquitous. Um, um, so, and, and, uh, and uh, lives in a very open, open format. So uh, it, it's hard to predict how this all is gonna play out. Um, and one of the things that I think is important to take a rabbit trail on is that um, um, government has a big, has a big say in this um, because they can they can they can make it illegal and they can regulate this and if they do they can't really stop it but they can prevent it from propagating and proliferating so centralized government um, will will not be a fan of this one of the things I, I talk to banks a lot uh, every week and they ask me about Bitcoin a lot I, I always tell them uh, the truth it's largely bad for you it's largely bad for any centralized institution. It is largely bad. And um, so to give you a quick example, all the large banks in America got together to try to form their own sort of blockchain technology. And um, uh, the, the Jack Henry folks uh, got me on a phone call to talk to them about it and whether they should participate. Well, in a decentralized world, um, Centralization doesn't work. You can't centralize decentralization. 
and you can't control it. So it's not, again, you've, you've completely removed power and control from it um, in terms of um, the, the traditional understanding of power and control. So a, co a country like China can't feel too comfortable with that, uh, right? Um, so it remains to be seen how different judicial systems will deal with this, but the judicial system is a very important element in everything that's gonna happen with, with the blockchain. Um, and there's, there's a lot of ideas around, around all of that. But again, I wanna move back to the Coke machine. I know this is a really simple metaphor, if you can build a contract for a Coke into a machine, you can build a contract for a house into a machine. And that machine just happens to run on a bunch of different computers. I don't know if I answered that question very well, Chris. No, I think it's great. I think for me, like the bigger, the bigger questions for me of, okay, if like you said, you've removed central control and power from, entities that have traditionally to this point been the best workable systems that we've created as humans to manage ourselves such as nation states or whatever that might be um ultimately this is subversive to that idea and like you say we see how it gets legislated but understanding what that looks like moving forward i think is something for us to be concerned about and think about and be prepared for yeah, I mean, the, the, one of the, the really interesting things, I, I think, um, and is that um, Silicon Valley, because they've seen this kind of thing before, um, they saw the internet, especially all the, early, all the early folks that innovated on the internet are now um, very wealthy investors. They understand what this means in the future. So the amount of investment at this early stage uh, of all, nearly all blockchain technology is an order of magnitude higher than the uh, initial investment in the internet. So one of the things to understand about any, any new technological advancement, it does not matter blockchain, I mean, it can be anything, right? It can be physics, it can be um, things like nanoscience. Um, it really, there's lots of things that are solved problems, um, but it's just a matter that the, the, when you talk about time, uh, time is really uh, oriented to the amount of money and investment. Um, so one of the things to understand is that the money investment that's pouring into this technology is, uh, an, is an order of magnitude higher than the early stages of the internet. So we're going to see this faster than we think. I think that's my question is, uh, you've done a great job of, uh, breaking it down into what it looks like, what it is. And then you've been done a great job of like Spanning it out to the future of where it's going, but how does it affect us in the here and now? Would you say it's not really affecting you um, today? I mean, you don't feel it, um, and um, one of the things to understand too is I'm a little less um, bullish on some of it because. Um, there still is yet, in the early stages, I guess, sorry guys, it's so hard for me to try to retranslate into this in non-technical terms. In the early stages of the internet, it was really hard to build things. Today, it's, how easy is it to build a shopping cart and start selling things online? You can do it in 20 minutes, okay? 
Uh, you can set things up like PayPal and Shopify or whatever. You can just go in and build it. In the early stages, it took engineers hundreds of thousands of dollars to build up, to build a shopping cart, okay, as an example. Today, on nearly all blockchain technology, it's very hard for developers to build software on top of it. Very difficult. So to like get to the ability to sell a house or represent property on the blockchain is very, very, still very, very difficult or order of magnitude difficult. People talk about Ethereum. Have you heard of Ethereum? Anyone heard of Ethereum? It, that platform, the reason why it's powerful is it's easier for developers, engineers to build things on top of that than it is uh, the, the traditional Bitcoin blockchain. So it's easier to represent a more sophisticated smart contract. Um, so there is some problems in the Bitcoin world and they're very technical in nature, um, but you have so much money being, being pushed at it that it's, it's um, um, the other thing too is for a developer to work in the blockchain, they have to be um, pretty deep. Uh, to work uh, on the internet today, to build a website, or to, you do not have to be deeply technical. Um, uh, to work on the blockchain, you have to be deeply technical. What will happen is you will build up layers on top of the existing technology that will abstract that away and it will become easier. As it becomes easier to build things, Jenny, that's where it will start to affect your life uh, because it'll start to show up in the fabric uh, of your life. Uh, in terms of Bitcoin itself, I'm always hesitant to talk about this because we're then we're in the world of currency, um, but you're starting to see you know, I've seen if you go, I mean, you, if you go to Silicon Valley or um, uh, you can see, you know, Bitcoin ATMs, you can uh, you can see uh, you can you can pay for Bitcoin, you know, pay with Bitcoin online with a lot of major brands already. So you're starting to see it show show up. But again, that's that's showing up. That payment network is really showing up. But that blockchain sort of lives underneath the hood. Um, but there's still a lot of problems um, with it as well. So. Uh, very hard to predict. The, the things that make it hard to predict are it's still very difficult to develop things on, one. Two, you still have um, what are governments going to do with it and how are they going to regulate it. Um, you have a centralized entity trying to control a decentralized thing. The other thing about it that a lot of people don't like to talk about, especially as it relates to Bitcoin, because it's decentralized, it attracts, um, it, because it's decentralized and there's no rule of law, um, um, you have a lot of, you have a lot of uh, suspect activity on that network. Most of the money on the Bitcoin network uh, is, is suspect in terms of just it coming from dark places. So that's another thing that not a lot of people like to talk about, but, but it's just true. Um, um, so, you know, one of the things I wonder a lot about, I think a lot about when it comes to these things, like how does, how does it come, the other thing to think about, and these are questions more than I have answers, but so in Africa, you mentioned Africa, Chris, when you opened, like um, how, does, how does this technology sort of grow up and build up in a, in a place where in which they don't have the years of judicial systems uh, government systems and infrastructure. So you're going to have net new infrastructure in those places. How does this, this technology evolve? I think that's a real question that, that, that's going to be fascinating to watch. And, it, and those are the places, honestly, where it's going to go faster 
than it can in the U.S. Uh, it, it can't go fast in the U.S. Um, in places that have all of the existing sort of entrapments, they can't move very fast. So I think where you're going to see the speed of this will be on the ground and, and net new places that have to have the, the, the pipes of the internet, like uh, as those things start to happen, it'll be, and then those people will be much more innovative than we can, we can because they're not, they don't have the entrapments. Even in my own brain, I have entrapments that help to keep me from thinking certain thoughts um, because I'm in banking, I'm in a centralized system. All of us are in a centralized system. That was what I was trying to illustrate. It's very difficult for us to think about this technology because it's all, everything we live and work in is centralized. So right now, you, you, you guys and your teams are actually not building blockchain technology. You're working within the existing system. That's not something... No, that like blockchain technology will kill Jack Henry. So the, the very nature of it would, um, would um, remove the community banking system in the United States. It's possible for that to happen. It's totally possible for you know, there are some things I don't like about it because you're removing that personal element. Uh, that's gone. That sort of human trust relationship that you used to build communities with, right? Uh, that fabric uh, is gone now. And now you're trusting a machine and an algorithm or a, a bunch of machines and an algorithm that's easier to do than to trust a human or to build trust. What is a community built on? It's built on trust. And we just said that we were gonna move trust from the equation for transacting, for commerce. A hundred trillion dollars moves in our economy in this world, you know, every year, like uh, that's all based on, on a lot of different kinds of trust. One of the things I say when I talk to community banks is, um, and they ask me about Bitcoin, is I say, I, I really like the community banking system in the United States because it is a distributed, uh, network of small institutions. Um, those, that distributed network of small institutions survived the financial collapse. Lehman Brothers did not. So heavy centralization um, of a trusted third party is not secure in, in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, so in a way, I like the community banking system more than I, in, in the United States, more than I like Bitcoin, even though I'm a technologist and I'm fascinated by the blockchain and what it can do. Um, uh, but it changes uh, how we interact as humans quite a lot in a way that's very difficult, I think, for us to understand right now. Um, um, because there's, there's no more trust required in a lot of ways. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ben. Like, I'm going to just ask one last question. And we've got two minutes before we need to move on to Rick, who's our second um, resource person today. Um, is, it essentially, is it essentially replacing like, the gold standards? So you talked about the level of trust and what backs up now. That used to be the gold standard. Is this essentially moving in that direction? That's a question from um, Jonathan. You're asking a really big question that probably requires, I, I might not be well equipped to metaphorize metaphorize um, what the question that you're asking. It's a hard question um, because um, nothing, nothing really backs this. My argument, and this is, this gets into opinions, but my argument is the United States military really backs this. Um, so this is not like, and you know, there's 
and you can get into a lot of heavy conversations about why, what makes this valuable. Well, if you talk about gold, uh, what makes gold valuable? So you should ask that question. If you're going to ask about the gold standard, you should ask, like, what makes gold valuable? How did we decide gold was valuable? That's why one of the things I always say is this is not real. Um, uh, maybe another way of getting at the problem is um, in Silicon Valley, there's, there's, a, there's a startup that, that can recreate diamonds perfectly. They can even recreate flawed diamonds, and you can't tell the difference. So if diamonds become ubiquitous, what happens to the value of diamonds? There's a scarcity. There's a scarcity um, in diamonds, right, and gold that makes it that we've somehow, someone along the way decided it was valuable. Now, this very quickly leads you down a slippery slope into the ideas of money and how we abstract it as humans over time, you know, because at first we traded cows, right, traded animals, and you can see that in all of our history, and then if you get to where we were trading shells and coins, if you get to certain places in Africa where they were literally, you find that they were, had, had chains of shells, right? Um, shells aren't, we don't consider shells that valuable. Now, they somehow had created a system of trading because they kept building abstractions on top of what was considered valuable. On the Bitcoin network, for example, on the blockchain, when you talk about a currency, there is a scarcity factor. There, there is a, 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 an, a, an end defined. They don't know exactly what they're going to do when they get to the end of that, but there is an end defined. There is a scarcity in terms of how much Bitcoin will be on the network. So that's one, that's one thing. The other thing that's important to understand is that proof of work, which is hard for me to metaphorize. I'm not smart enough to metaphorize it in a really good way. Um, but um, that computation is expensive and so that's another form of value that happens in exchange so if you can perform that computation really well you get bitcoin well at some point that will end and uh there'll have to be some other way of uh of of, in, uh, of money movement on that particular blockchain again we're talking about money on top of a blockchain but so these systems um one of the very interesting innovations in Bitcoin was that fraud was disincentivized on the Bitcoin network. So it, it, fraud was dealt with with cryptography and lots of other things, but it was, um, it was essentially uh, disincentivized. You're more highly incentivized as a computer scientist if you know how to deal with that network to set up nodes to operate to mine than you are to try to steal it. Um, because you would have to organize, at this point, quite a lot of computers, it would be nearly impossible to, to build a, a big enough network to try to defraud the Bitcoin network. So cool. back to value, that's a hard conversation um, because the value of Bitcoin, we just talked about currency today, which you asked a currency question. You asked about the gold standard. Um, uh, to really under, the value really is, is in the trading. If you watch the Bitcoin price go up, you know, uh, and it just is going to work like every other market, you know, and the value systems really, it's very ephemeral. I honestly, my personal opinion, which isn't a popular opinion, is there is no value in it, ultimately. It's, cool. This is an I, idea in our minds. Thank you so, so much, Ben. Thank you for your time. We really, really, really appreciate it. We're going to, I'm going to hand over to Ginny to transition this, but that was great. Thank you very much. going to give us lots to discuss when we get to the end of the time. Thank you.
Much appreciated. Sure. Thank you. Okay, Jenny, over to you. Thank you. Um, that was very enlightening uh, conversation, and I know that blockchain, all those things have been things that have been interesting to me, but difficult, difficult to grasp. So I'm very grateful for um, kind of the chance to discuss it and to get um, yeah, an idea of what it is, what it means for us, and how it affects it. So now we are going to be transitioning to Rick Austin. He is somebody that's located in California in the Silicon Valley. Um, somebody that's very has had many years experience in technology, has brought been a part of bringing a lot of the technologies that are very common to us out and making them <laughs> just a part of our, of our everyday lives. So he's um, still very much involved and in working in the Silicon Valley and still very much part of future technology. So um, he's here, he's gonna share a bit, starting out, he's gonna share a bit about his experience, some of the um, technologies he's been a part of, developing, delivering, and kind of also things that he's seeing now. Because every time I have a conversation with him, he's got crazy things up his sleeve that he's been seeing. So um, I was wondering if you could start us out with just telling us a bit of your experience, your history. I know you were part of the Silicon Valley before it was Silicon Valley and Salt Lake City and then moved with it to San Jose. So can you tell us a little bit about your um, experience, some of the things you've worked with and where you're at now? All right. Good evening to everyone. Um, I started in high technology in 1975, maybe before uh, many on the call were born. So it's been 40 plus years, started in a semiconductor wafer fab, um, which was the early days of semiconductor technologies with the Intel's national semiconductors um, in various companies that you may be familiar with. I've seen the, the technology grow from the silicon wafers in that day, it used to be about two inches in diameter uh, that built the microchips today, state-of-the-art wafer fab has 12-inch wafers, the size of a, of a nice pizza, uh, building microchips that go into uh, virtually everything that we're familiar with. The other area that I spent time with in the 90s, uh, spent a lot of time in Asia, was in the disk drive industry, uh, manufacturing hard disks that went into uh, making disk drives. And then, uh, since early 2000, I've been in the semiconductor capital equipment business. We make equipment that inspects and measures uh, in the process of manufacturing semiconductors for our customer. So, essentially glorified microscopes that we build today that may range anywhere from a million dollars each, depending on the technology, to over $40 million each. Uh, for uh, some of the very sophisticated high technology things that we manufacture. So that's what I do today. I run global manufacturing for our company worldwide uh, in Asia, Israel, Europe, in the US. Um, probably manage about 1,200 people in a budget 
of over $1.5 billion. Wow. So I think an interesting part of your story too is, is that you were part of the process of bringing a lot of the technology and stuff over to Asia. Would you agree with that? And do you have anything to speak, say to that? Uh, it did. Uh, I've moved a lot of manufacturing technology and product to Asia. Um, in the 90s, we moved factories, built factories into, uh, into Malaysia. Uh, also had joint ventures in Japan and um, Thailand. The um, current manufacturing we do, I've moved products to Singapore. We have our Singapore operation now is uh, our largest manufacturing factory. And then we've also moved products into Hong Kong and Shenzhen. Cool. I'm wondering if you can um, talk to us a bit about what you're what you're seeing, because I know you're meeting a lot with people developing new technologies, and you're you guys are developing new technologies. So, what kind of things are you seeing coming? And I know, yeah, you you've seen lots of things. So, can you throw a few things at us of, of what you're seeing? Yeah. Well, you asked me that, and I prepared a whole page of things that I'm I'm seeing, uh, hearing about in Silicon Valley. There is a lot going on in technology. Um, let me give you a, a couple of things. Um, I don't know how many people on the call are familiar with a cartoon show that was built was in the late '60s and early '70s. It was called The Jetsons, and we looked at what the Jetsons cartoon had, uh, we'll say around 1970. And they had uh, jetpacks they went around in. Well, there's jetpacks available today uh, that people can go around. They wore smartwatches that they could talk uh, to people of video calls. Uh, today we have the Apple Watch, very similar. They had drones that could go around and, and fly around. Drones are very, popular today and are in multiple uses. I could talk about various things happening in the drone world and that could be a whole subject unto itself. Uh, they had flying cars. Uh, today there are flying car prototypes and uh, various technologies going on there. They had robotic home helpers. Uh, there's more and more robotics that we see today. Uh, you can find a lot of robotic kiosks in airports today. Uh, they 3D printed food, uh, instantly available. Uh, video phone, and now you have with an iPhone, not only a video phone, but a computer. And then they had holograms. And um, there's a lot of things in holograms today. So when you, you think about all that, I'm going to build up something else. If you think of Internet of Things, that's really everything connected. If you drew circles out you start with people you have your phones you can be connected like we are today with a computer uh, there's personal devices that go out from the people to access information things you have automobiles I'll talk a little bit then talk in uh, the rest of the world there is so much talk in Silicon Valley and so much going on for autonomous vehicles it's crazy uh, and I can talk a little bit more about that. You go into smart homes and technology in homes uh, to automate things, security, 
um, just everything that happens. And then you have cities and industries like Amazon for shopping, cities that are connected. So at some point in time, your car will have a sensor and you hit a pothole on the road, it will send the signal to the city, the location of that pothole, and in the city they'll have all these data coming in that, wow, there's a pothole out on such and such a road that needs to be fixed. So uh, a lot of things driving that technology. So two more things and then I'll get off. This drives lots of data and lots of servers in the cloud space. So if you think about by the year 2020, each person, each of us will generate 1.7 megabits of new data per second. That's 44 times more than we generated in 2010. The data centers to store all this information that we're uploading with tweets and YouTube and messages and everything that we do, by 2020, data center space will grow to 200 million square miles, actually by 2018, next year, 200 million square miles. So these data centers are becoming a huge issue as far as they're growing so fast, the space, the power. Uh, Amazon Web Services added more capacity in a day than they had as a whole company 10 years ago. And Microsoft has submitted patents for underwater data centers after tests confirming cooling benefits. So when you think about the amount of space, the amount of cooling uh, for that. So that's a little bit kind of the lay of the land. From that, there's all sorts of technologies. It's kind of where would you like to go? There's things in autonomous vehicles. There's... Um, deep learning, there's artificial intelligence, there's virtual reality, there's augmented reality, surgical robotics, um, holographic uh, medical systems. What would you like to talk about? I would. Uh, yeah, go Chris. I would, I would love to hear just some of the things you're seeing or hearing about AI and that whole trajectory. Um, yeah, whatever you, what you, whatever you're hearing, what if you're learning, whatever you see, whatever you're involved in. So, AI is um, is a segment of deep learning. So there's a few things that are going on, and deep learning is just it's it's deep structural learning uh, in computer and and systems as opposed to routines that that do things for you. So uh, things like computer vision things we're all familiar with, speech recognition is deep learning as far as continuing to improve based on uh, the process of people uh, using speech re uh, re recognition. Um, natural language processing, bioinformatics, uh, and even drug design is in, in that. But I'll give you one very good example that is for the good of mankind. IBM has their computer Watson, people may have heard about, uh, it's famous for winning chess matches, uh, but they have a, a deep learning in the medical field. So they are feeding all sorts of information you can imagine into Watson from medical articles, uh, medical training, 
things that are being learned real time. So you can, as a service, um, pay to connect to that system, input systems of a patient, and it will give you a probability of diagnosis of uh, what's happening with that patient, what disease they may have uh, and from the symptoms and treatment uh, recommendations from that. So all the tests that I've seen from this, it is extremely accurate. Uh, and not only accurate, the time savings uh, can take, save hours or days. Because if you have something very unusual to try in your networks or to find out if other people have seen it, uh, what they have done, uh, that takes time. And with Watson, uh, it can be a matter of minutes uh, to have that data and information available for treatment. So that's a very good example of, of kind of deep learning and, and things that can go from that. How, how about biotechnologies, Rick, in terms of just the evolution advancement of, I guess, the cyborgness of humans? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, how, how long are you seeing technologies where literally like chips go inside us? I mean, Ben was talking on the last input about his, his colleague that's put chips into his hands to keep his backups for his Bitcoin keys. Um, are you seeing more and more of that in, in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I mean, there's there's all aspects of that. I mean, when you, uh, I think you're trying to intersect AI with uh, machines, and uh, will it become what we see in in movies? Um, maybe. I mean, there there is a lot of robotic capability. Uh, you know, there's a company in Massachusetts that was owned by Google for a little bit, but you know, it, it made a robotic. Uh, uh, animal that could run and, and jump uh, like 60 miles an hour uh, through that, through algorithms. So there is a lot of science, uh, science fiction talk about concern about artificial intelligence. Um, I'm reading a book on, from Walter Isaacson about the history of the computer. Uh, and in the section that I'm, I'm in about uh, can you have artificial intelligence in a computer? The concern is, well, you can program it to learn and, and to do all sorts of things. The real test is, could behind a screen, you have a real person in a, in a computer AI, could you ask it questions and, and uh, tell the difference, is it a person or is it a computer? And the big debate is, obviously a computer does not have a soul and a computer does not have feelings. And for a human, it's that interaction of our feelings, our emotions, uh, things that we've learned coming together. Uh, a computer is not going to have that. And maybe you can program it to respond in certain ways, but um, I think that's part of the debate. Now, there's people like Hawkins that are concerned about AI. Elon Musk talks about uh, actually augmented intelligence by implanting uh, chips and capability in the human mind to uh, um, be able to think and, and, and learn um, at accelerated levels. So it's an area I'm not that close to, but I, I've also seen a lot in the robotics world and surgery. Uh, I've seen robotic 
systems that are very precise in microns to do back sur surgery. Uh, intuitive Surgical uh, actually builds various robotic surgical uh, tools that are used uh, around the world. In Israel, I saw a robotic uh, echo skeleton so that people that are paralyzed, I've been in a room and watched them walk and, and climb steps uh, with an echo skeleton, so they strap into it. Uh, you can look on, online, the company is called Rewalk, R-E-W-A-L-K. Um, pretty interesting. I've also seen in holography uh, that um, also a company that I visited in Israel that can take all of the data from a, a MR or CT scan real time doing heart surgery and it can put a holographic heart in front in reaching distance of the surgeon who can look at the heart, what's going on inside. They can actually slice it in different segments to see what's happening uh, in guiding their surgery. And as they're doing surgery, they can see their instruments into the heart and, and where they are. So not only are they over the patient in the heart, but they have uh, a visual hologram uh, above the patient that they can see the actual heart and what's happening so that they uh, – can operate in, in the right area of it. So like I said, it's pretty vast and, and broad areas. Just a quick thing to maybe add to the question. The recent time they learn doing things that we can't predict. It's that it's really kind of that simple. Um, so if you look at the, the AI that was developed to beat the AlphaGo, it was AlphaGo that was developed to beat the Go players. If you study the, the moves that it made along the way, they were moves that no one, no human would have made or would have done. So the concern is um, you could develop those kinds of algorithms where in which there's, they might choose to do something say in, a, in an autonomous vehicle situation that you can't predict. These are all statistical oriented algorithms. So they, they're, they're, um, you, they're not predictable by humans in some ways. So that's where the concern really lies at its sort of essence um, and why people like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking would be concerned because they understand very deeply how those algorithms work. And, um, 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 and the other problem is, is there's so much um, just rhetoric, because uh, anyone in the media who's uh, talking about AI doesn't know what it is. They don't mm -hmm. understand it. That's the main thing to understand. If you go read any article anywhere in any media, doesn't matter if it's the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, they trusted media sources, that person who's writing about it does not understand it. It's very difficult to understand. Um, um, so sorry, I just wanted to jump in. And, and, and it's actually a, a great point because um, the, the, there's so much happening in autonomous vehicles, and actually Tesla is uh, further ahead than, than most. I mean, Google has cars running around the valley here that are autonomous, uh, still have people in them. Uh, and there's uh, approved companies um, that are doing autonomous vehicles around the valley. But Tesla, uh, there's a te Tesla's are a dime a dozen in, in the valley here. And driving in them, I have people that work for me who uh, go up the freeway. And um, 
they let the car do the driving up the freeway. Uh, they have a light touch on the steering wheel. Uh, it keeps them in the lane. It predicts what's happening around you much faster than you can see. <clears throat> and the interesting thing around the algorithms is what decisions will autonomous vehicles make if you're about to have a head-on collision to avoid that versus going onto a sidewalk where there's a lot of people? The, the real question is how, how are you gonna make choices and what choices will be made uh, for one human life versus many uh, mm. in those situations, which is all sorts of implications uh, on that. Okay, so how, okay, how do you program ethics? That's an ethical question. That's it is an ethical question. It's an if, when, what if scenario, yeah. It turns out that our ethical systems are very disparate, even in this group. If we put a very simple ethical question into this group, we could probably banter it about for hours. There would be differences, even among people that hold a common set of values. Mm -hmm. so one of the things we've discovered in trying to encode ethical systems is that they're so disparate and there's such a difference in, in, a, in, a, in an opinion and value systems that it's exposing our own value systems yeah. uh, in ways that we just didn't understand before. Yeah. So I it's going to create a lot of interesting future issues how do the yeah. issues decide who was at fault was it vehicle a or vehicle b wow so if, if you take autonomous vehicles further because i think it's every automobile company that you can think of has a development center in silicon valley working on uh, all things electronic in a car but there's an article recently, and it's a lot of talk about this, but to add truly all the technology for autonomous vehicles, it, it adds five to $8,000 of cost uh, to the car. And if you look at the utilization of, of a car today, on average, uh, you utilize a vehicle less than 5% of the time in a day. And then if you look at what real value a vehicle offers, uh, it's only value is maybe when you go to the store and you bring things back uh, that's when you're really utilizing that asset 30% uh, of all traffic in cities is a driver searching for a parking spot hmm. so if you had driverless cars uh, there'd be no need for insurance uh, you would, the liability issue would go to the car makers and suppliers uh, there'd be fewer car accidents fewer trips to the emergency room. Obviously, the body repair business would, would be in bad shape. Um, auto parts stores could go away. Uh, the differences between one model of car and another might diminish. It'd be more, fewer car makers. Uh, the real value would be in the electronics, the data, uh, the time to get to a spot, how soon you get to that. It would drive restructuring of, of whole economies and how you spend your, your time and where you spend your money. Um, there's a lot of things you pay for today that you wouldn't have to pay for, even windshield wipers. I mean, the simple things, oil changes. Uh, if it was a few blocks away, you might walk instead of hiring a car. The pricing might <clears throat> include a shorter wait for a car and the luxuries in the car, just like today you have UberX and 
Uber Extreme and various things. Uh, you might want to guarantee that you have a clean car with Wi-Fi. Uh, is a cheaper option good enough? So as autonomous vehicles go on, most people in the valley that have kids that are five or six years old, most people will say they don't believe those, their children will ever have to drive a car. Wow. Now, being in Thailand last week, in, in the contrast between what's being talked about in autonomous vehicles in the U.S. versus cars and in the way of life in Thailand, I, I think we might live in a little bit of a bubble here. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think there'll be some European cities uh, that will, today they only allow electrical, electric vehicles downtown. Uh, they may only allow autonomous vehicles. And I think city centers are, are the area that would benefit the most uh, sooner. So I could certainly see city like San Francisco and their Silicon Valley that could drive towards having areas of the city for autonomous vehicle uh, driving only. I think, I, I think I love that you're talking about this and it's something that's so common and natural or, and something that you run into, but it's something that I think most of us on this call can't even imagine. <laughs> I've never seen a driverless car, but it's just something that's common. And like what you're saying is this is the expectation and the anticipation. I think um, we only have 10 minutes lit left, but I think we, you kind you and Ben have kind of naturally brought us to a place where I was hoping that we'd end up. And the whole point of kind of looking out into the future of technology quickly brings us to some controversial points. And that's kind of where we want to end up. And things like AI, things like removing the trust in blockchain, uh, just quickly bioengineering, all these kind of things, it quickly gets controversial. And it quickly becomes like, I don't know how to involve my faith, my ethics, anything into this conversation. So what I've seen is a lot of people just shut down and disengage from it. And so having these kind of conversations is our way of saying, like, we don't want to disengage it. We want to be talking about it. We want to be on the forefront of talking about the ethics of it. We don't want to remove ourselves from the conversations. We want to insert ourselves in the conversation, be well-informed, and, and kind of have the mind of Christ in this. So I've opened up a big can of worms, but I'm wondering just to kind of conclude this, if maybe both of you could say how you're able to engage it and how you maybe <laughs> what you would say to us. I have a couple of things that, that about history has been slow to embrace technology. Um, I've been around long enough. There was a period that people did not want guitars in church. It wasn't religious. Uh, they didn't want electric guitars. They didn't want um, overhead projectors for the music. They didn't want projectors. And, and so there's a period that the church wasn't embracing uh, the simple technologies around. It certainly changed today. You can read your Bible on, on your device and uh, uh, follow along. But I think the point is God has given us a lot of creativity and innovation and the ability to innovate. Uh, it's happening around us, and I think what you said, uh, not being ignorant of it and being part of the conversation is important. I think the, the biggest issue is going to be, uh, we didn't talk about this, but the technology is, is quickly there for us to 
do away with currency and, and to be able to buy and sell uh, with a mark uh, that's talked about in Revelation. Uh, that technology is, is upon us. And the question is, as that technology, if that were to happen in our lifetime, in the end times, it would, be, it would drive us more and faster uh, to reach those that are uh, uh, not in the kingdom and, and to share with that. So where people in the U.S. sometimes are going away from uh, the bad morals of, of cities like the Bay Area and congregating in, con in Colorado, God wants us in the midst of where the people are and, and the issues are and to work with the people. Because ultimately, it has nothing to do with technology, but it has to do with the people around us. Yeah, I, I don't think technology is controversial. We've been inventing it for a really long time. We were always invented as part of our creativity. It's part of God's design, I think. Um, and so, I mean, if you take, I don't have one here, but I have an Apple pencil here. Um, the wooden pencil was a, an amazing invention, no different than this. So if you, if you think about the technology of paper, this was amazing technology. This is not controversial, mm -hmm. um, along with the technology of, say, an iPad. Okay, so um, these aren't any different. I think that would be the thing I would try to, I always try to say is like, this is technology. This is just technology we now deeply understand and deeply control and have our heads around. Um, this changed the world. This idea changed the entire fabric of the world. It changed religion. Um, you don't have Martin Luther King without paper. Sorry, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther. Um, so you don't have those kinds of revolutions. Um, it, I think the, the thing that will be hard is that technology will change and our understanding of ourselves is going to change. And if our understanding of ourselves changes, um, our understanding of who God is changes. One very specific thing to illustrate this is uh, artificial intelligence is helping us understand our own intelligence that we've been given. We don't understand our own brains and how they work. The big advancements in AI have been made by people who have gone and studied neuroscience. So the big jump that got made by Google with Alpha and AlphaGo Alpha um, was made by a gentleman who, uh, with a master's in computer science who went and got a degree in neuroscience. The other thing that I would encourage in terms of technology, the, the things that, that are happening, um, and the, I'm gonna meddle a little bit, and I know you guys have sort of separated these things out with like, you know, like the, the ideas of seven mountains and all those kinds of things, those things are converging. We're in a time of heavy convergence. We're in which advancements will be made in psychology because of computer science. Advancements will be made, um, you know, in, in, in religion and our understanding of God because of computer science. And that's a very strange thing for us to get our heads around that's a bit controversial because I would argue that AI is going to help us understand who God is in a way that we haven't before. Um, because we're going to start to understand ourselves more. Um, so the thing that I, 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 I would encourage um, people, it, it, Rick's totally right. We've had a tradition of being late to these things, to technology. And um, um, 
we can't be late anymore. We got to be early. And the real key now is for us to converge these things, to bring these mountains together. Uh, the, the, the idea of seven mountains, I sort of really hate uh, because it creates uh, silos and ideas in our mind that, that are, are, are problematic. Um, so I don't consider technology to be uh, uh, controversial at all. The controversial part is really in our minds, in our wetware uh, versus software. So this idea of software versus wetware, the, the ideas in our minds. And the, the last challenge I would leave us all with is that it's really hard to understand the pace of change right now. Um, one of the most eerie parts of the Bible that we're experiencing right now is that knowledge will increase. And in the, it, the increase of knowledge and the pace of it is so, so fast that we can't understand it. Even someone like me and it's in the middle of it, difficult to understand. Um, and so the things are moving faster than we, than, than we can get our heads around, which is causing us problems, which then causes, gives us a lot of controversy because we have trouble changing our minds. That's where the controversy lives. Um, so yeah, that's, that might be what, what I, I would say. Hey, well, thanks guys. Really, I, I love the way that you're both ending this and I think it taps the heart of what we're trying to do in this call and say, we don't want to be late to the party. We want to engage the conversation. That's why we as a community are doing this and pressing it out, pushing, pushing us to think in, in areas that also, we, also like kind of, kind of Rick said, we don't get a lot of access in one sense. You know, many of us are living in places where the idea of a self-autonomous driving car would be, I mean, it's a, it's a joke on the streets of, of Mumbai or whatever it would be, but, but nevertheless, like the world's changing. And as that drives a, economy that will filter down in the next 30 40 50 years and and for us you know talking about these things it's like we're in situations and, and contexts where there actually could be those leapfrog, leapfrog technologies and um, where there isn't the architecture that that would be there in north america and, and maybe that change comes more rapidly and um, to places that we actually work and live and, and i think that was that was also a really awesome point that you made ben earlier as well and um, but like in terms of just that last point and i i totally agree like this isn't something that I think as believers we're supposed to be scared of or considered to be controversial, but so much of, in my experience anyway, at least the body of Christ does reactively freak out by these things. And um, I just really like what you guys are both saying about that and saying, no, this is something that we can embrace. We can engage because we're made in the image of God and we're actually called to be part of that process. And in the middle of the debate and the process, not on the edges or even after the facts, being all freaked out by it. So I, I'm just really thankful that you guys have been willing to come on, share your perspectives, tell us what you know, and, and push out our worldviews a bit in terms of where we're at and what we what we know in a limited way. So I, just, I closing up, I just want to say thank you very much to both of you for taking the time to share with us. It's been massively helpful, really good, and really good to hear from people that actually know what they're talking about. <laughs> so thank you very, very much. Um, yeah, we're really, really grateful for your time. So what, what, we, what we're going to do at this point is like, I know you guys might have to leave and you're very welcome to do so, but we're going to just give another 10, 15 minutes for our community just to do some wrap up questions and answers and just any reflections on what we've heard um, as a way to just kind of like make it a bit more applicable, just any thoughts or reflections from our group that isn't um, in the, in the, um, down the text those questions but if you've got anything to say or any reflections or any questions you want to ask or things you think 
it'd be really good to discuss that more. Then we've got about another 10 minutes that we're going to do that in. Um, but the formal part of the input of the call is is done if you need to if you need to go because we said an hour and a half. But for those that want to stay on now, we're just going to give another 10, 15 minutes to chat and ask questions or give feedback or thoughts. So it's a little bit more of an open forum. Okay, well, it's only 6 a.m. here, so I can hang around. <laughs> cool. I'm, I moved my, my meeting, so I'm hanging around. I'll hang around for a few minutes. Cool. Any questions, guys, or any thoughts or reflections that you want to ask either Rick or Ben? Or even just reflections on, on how, what you're hearing. Thinking. I think it, this is SJ. I think it's been absolutely fascinating. Um, I don't have um, a clue when it comes to most of the stuff that you're talking about, but I want to say thank you so much for making it understandable. I think I've learned more in the last hour and a half than I have done in months. Um, so I really want to say thank you so much to the both of you. It was incredibly fascinating. And I think I might actually get have some sort of understanding about what kind of blockchain and Bitcoin is. And I love the technologies that you were talking about, Rick. I think this has been one of my favorite co-thinks so far. So yeah, thank you so much, both of you, for your time. I think, I think for me, I love, well, and it's, it's come through in both what you shared, it's just that the total subversiveness, if you really follow these things to their logical conclusions of, of you know, the changed economy, even like the simple thing of like less people going to ER, that has a, that has a huge um, effect on the medical industry and that's billions and billions of dollars globally. Um, you think about the decentralization of real estate transfers in 30 years time, it, it both creates and removes and distorts and disrupts whole economies. And I think for me, that's, that's the stuff where I just think, okay, what are the possibilities in that and uh, within that? And, and what does that mean? And I, I, I don't know, but I, I just love the, I love the, the potential and the capacity and, and the scale of change that's coming. Um, and it just makes me say, okay, Jesus, where, where are you calling us to position ourselves in, in, in that type, in these types of processes that we can be relevant and beacons of light? So I, I, I know, I'm just really inspired by what you guys shared. It was really very, very cool stuff. I think. Nope. Oh, I was going to say, I was just thinking, like, we didn't spend much time on 3D print, and there is a lot of stories out there of families that have 3D printed uh, fingers and, and things that have helped their children um, do things that unable to do. Um, and from a missionary standpoint, some of these 3D printers, I mean, there, there could be opportunity in the field to actually 3D print things that would help improve people's lives physically uh, based on what's happening. Uh, even our company, we've invested in a company that we are able to 3D print the lenses uh, that go into the eyeglasses that we wear, which is potentially going to disrupt that industry. Rick, do you see any other very disruptive technologies coming? You've talked about, I mean, we've got time to ask you because you're still here. So 
like you talked about autonomous vehicles, you've talked about that. Are there any other like massively disruptive things that you see coming that that we don't necessarily see right now? Well, I don't know. It depends on what your term of massive is. So you could go back to computer history and something you take for granted for today is a mouse. Uh, that was a big invention at, at its time to interface. Look, I don't think we're that far away from uh, questioning what a keyboard is. Uh, why would you use a keyboard? You look at the interaction that we have with technology today, I, I think it's gonna continue to change. Uh, Amazon is, I think, way ahead of Apple and Google with their Alexa uh, AI system versus Siri. Siri is still clunky and doesn't seem to have improved and Alexa is able to pretty seamlessly do an awful lot. Uh, and it's changing what people do in their homes today. So I think our interaction and interface <laughs> with technology is gonna- My Alexa just came on. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't ask Alexa to buy something for you. <laughs> So I think our interface with technology is going to get more seamless, uh, which will change what we're able to do and how we do things. I think um, the, the real thing to think about, I said this earlier, Chris, to your question, it's not the new things on the horizon that are going to surprise us. It's the convergence of things that already exist. So uh, Bitcoin is a convergence of things that already existed. Um, they just took five or six different ideas that had existed, and these were ideas, and they built something out of it that created this thing that's now the largest payments network in the world. That's a surprise. The things that are gonna surprise us are convergence. Uh, the AI surprise for everyone here is a, is a convergence of neuroscience, the ideas, uh, and how our brains work with computer science. Those, those convergence points are the things that will surprise us. Um, and I think that's where we can, we can be innovative. Um, uh, I think that's where the innovation is, is to remove the silos in our heads about these categories and, and move into convergence. It's people that have degrees, say, you know, in one particular area, and then they just move and start to study another thing. So um, that's where you can get these, these breakthroughs because we have so siloed our minds and our ideas. Um, that this is the way things are. Um, and so that, that, that would be what I think about that. I think some surprises though that are very specific would probably be things like augmented reality versus virtual reality. I think what's happening in augmented reality is not being very challenged very well. Um, but but uh, it's gonna be the convergence of augmented reality you know, with you know, systems and other things. So. Can you explain the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality? Yeah, so augmented reality, the easiest way to explain that one is um, uh, Pokemon Go. That is an augmented reality game because you're, this the convergence of your physical world with a computer game. So that would be an, uh, an example of augmented reality. And uh, that was the first like big hit example. We're gonna see a ton of other ideas that get explored in, 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 in augmented reality. Um, um, versus virtual reality, I think uh, that's, that's, it. that's what gets all the hot press. Augmented reality is sort of this thing that's not well understood. Yeah, if you look at AR or VR, it's really 
artificial computer gen generated simulation. It might be, you know, I've seen one Lufthansa where you can sit and coach and look around the airplane and see 360 up and, and below you. Augmented reality is very interesting. I'm in the manufacturing world and I'm in, there is, uh, I won't say the company, but who makes satellites that go into space. And since everything is designed digitally, the augmented reality, they have a, a cube room they go to in the US that the whole team can go there and they can virtually assemble a satellite in their world uh, and write procedures without touching anything. So they're, they're all in a room, all the designs of the modules, and they can be working together, uh, fitting a module into a satellite and virtually build a satellite with nothing but air. Pretty fascinating. I think uh, my feedback from what I'm hearing is from a novice, just a uh, news reader and article reader and all that kind of stuff. All I hear is the negative aspects of AI and the dangerous aspects and the, there's a lot of scared stories and articles out there. So I think one thing that I've gotten from both of you guys is, is that you're very comfortable with where it's going and what it can do. I know that there's like questions, but I think from the mainstream media, what I get is just like those doom and gloom stories. So I think it's been fascinating to hear you guys' perspective on that. One quick uh, recommendation I, th that, I mean, it's very hard to find a book that can give you a broad understanding about where we're at. Um, I, I highly recommend uh, Kevin Kelly's book called Inevitable or Inevitable, depending on how you want to pronounce that. Um, um, and, and he really makes a case for a lot of the things we're talking about, I think in a really beautiful way in terms of, he doesn't make a lot of predictions. He just says, Hey, these things are inevitable. Here's, here's, here's the things that are sort of in inevitable, um, where they're going. And I, I love the way he talks about AI in the book. Um, uh, and, and, um, um, if you don't know who he is, he's the founder of Wired Magazine, co-founder of Wired Magazine, um, uh, and one of the people that I really trust and like um, in, the, in this kind of big conversation. I think the big challenge that we all face is who we're going to trust in terms of our information. Um, and um, when it gets to some of these technical, deeply technical things, they're very hard to find out, like, whose opinion are you, you know, going to trust? So to find really trusted resources to where in which to educate yourself um, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a real challenge. And I have a few that I, I'll, I'll, probably, I'll try to share them uh, here um, with, with just in terms of the people that I read and, and find um, that are really important. Uh, on the Bitcoin front, uh, there's a guy named Nick Sabo. Um, he's, he lives in the Silicon Valley. He, he really was invented the precursor to Bitcoin. And the way he writes and talks about it, if you really want to know more, I would highly recommend uh, reading him because he really builds, helps build a lot of metaphorical understanding for what's going on there. He's the guy who invented the term smart contract. As a quick example, it, I would highly uh, discourage uh, reading uh, general media about these things. Highly discourage it. <laughs> highly discourage it. <laughs> if there's a, a, I read the Wall Street Journal every day, um, most every day, and, and I don't read any, any article that's on AI, I never read it. I don't want it in my mind. It's not correct, generally. 
if you go to that RealView website that I sent on the chat, I have a video of an example of augmented reality of playing a violin via a hologram as an example. So, and I've interacted with these holograms in Israel. It's crazy. <laughs> Anything specifically, Rick? Just what did he, what, like, what were you doing? Well, uh, of course, there's a demo, so I got to hold a dragon and, and uh, rotate the dragon around anyway. Uh, I held a human heart and uh, was able to, in my hand, rotate any which way I want, and I could move my fingers and slice and open and, and see any section or cross-section of, of the heart beating holographically in what appeared in front of me. But, uh, wow. yeah. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Who knows where that goes, but yeah, really. Well, we've reached time guys. So thank you so much again for taking the time to share with us. We've, I've learned lots. It's been great. And um, thank you so much for everyone for coming. And um, I hope that was informative and useful and we will be continuing our ongoing series as we move forward. I think the next one's either on environmentalism. I can't remember exactly what we've got worked out, but we've got a whole menu coming. So um, thanks again. Amber, I think she's gone, and Lawrence from the L3 community. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And it was great to have everyone else here as well. So thanks, guys, so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys.